Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our CEAI Apartment Podcast. Uh, my name is Lydia Kincaid, and I have with me today Lee Harris and Ryan Huffman. Thank you both for being here and sharing our story with our audience. Um, today, we're going to dive in with one of the deals that we've done, a successful deal that we just ended up selling just a few weeks ago, um, a property called Centerville Point. So, Lee, maybe if you could help us level set, um, can you talk about the structure um, of the limited partnership and some of our investors in that deal and how we put that together from the beginning? Sure. So uh, Centerville Point is a 250-unit property in Garland, Texas, which is a Dallas suburb. Uh, this particular property was built in the 1990s, um, and it's a brick construction, a good solid property. It's somewhat unique in the fact that it's a portion of the 250 units, 150 of the units are market rate and 100 units were affordable housing using a tax credit program. And when I say affordable housing, that means that there were rent restrictions as well as income restrictions on the, the residents that could live there. Uh, the investor, uh, the primary investor, the limited partner in our parlance is an institution uh, that we've had a long-term relationship with uh, and they have a unique fund that has a requirement for workforce housing. And because of the affordable housing component uh, of, of Cinderville Point, this fit nicely in their uh, requirement and, and their mission. Uh, so the capital stack looked like the institutional investor with about 90% of the equity. Uh, we have a fund, uh, a co-investment fund, CEAI Fund 23, which is a, a fund that's now closed, uh, put in approximately 10% of the equity. Uh, and then there was uh, financing uh, in place as well. Ryan, you can maybe speak to the financing uh, vehicle that we utilized. But uh, we bought that property in uh, 2016 uh, held it for approximately five years and uh, recently sold it here in the last six weeks or so, six to eight weeks. Um, and uh, we, were, we were very pleased to generate a 26% annualized return for uh, the LP. Uh, so a very successful investment indeed. Uh, part of that was uh, some of the things we did with the property. Some of that's market driven but all in all, everybody's big smiles. That's right. I mean, I think this one was a particularly big success story for our firm um, from beginning to end. So Ryan, Lee mentioned you could talk a little bit more about the financials. And also, could you go into what our strategy was with this particular property and how we executed on that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Centerville, um, you know, we talk about diff having different strategies and being able to, to bob and weave with the market. And Centerville is a good example of how that could go. We have an equity partner, as Lee mentioned, that that really has a mission-driven focus of providing that affordable housing. And that can be difficult if the property has 100% of the units restricted. So the first thing that attracted us to Centerville is it's what's called a hybrid deal. And hybrid means we have so many units that are restricted and then another section of units that are market rate. And so that provides an opportunity to renovate and, and boost rents um, on those market rate units, particularly when we, we have restricted units that are at what's called maximum allowable rent, which is the maximum rent we can charge. So um, 
that was the first attraction to it. The second is it has a unique uh, unit mix. It's got two, three, and four bedroom units, which is really difficult to find those big four bedroom units anywhere. So very family oriented. Um, you know, the the third component here is Garland is a, a workforce housing environment. It's predominantly manufacturing. Um, if you look at the job centrist in Garland. So you start putting the pieces together and the plan comes together well of having a well-situated property in a market that needs that kind of housing with big units um, and, and in a townhome style, in many cases, kind of look like row homes almost. So we put together our offer, showed it to our equity partner. Um, the investment strategy was high level. We were going to do about a million two of renovation to the property. Um, uh, only about 350,000 of that was going to be on the interiors. And we were focusing that money on the market rate interiors only. The, the affordable restricted interiors were in good shape. We were still getting the rent lift every year on those, but we really wanted to pop those units on the market rate side. The balance was being spent on the exterior and interestingly on a, on a piece you can't even get rent for, which is we needed new roofs across the whole property. So you know, the plan was go in, start the renovation, start changing, you know, the unit profile, resident profile, particularly on those market rate units um, and on a seven year hold. Um, we financed the property with a Fannie Mae loan. Um, so it was, you know, sized according to Fannie Mae standards. What we try to do is marry the loan terms with the property hold. So this was going to be a seven-year hold. So we did a Fannie seven-year loan with a three-year lockout, which means we couldn't pay it off for three years. And then after that, we could we could pay the loan off. So, uh, which fits well within our investment strategy. We've talked before. We do um, all of this upgrade on the turn. So a unit naturally comes into the inventory. We upgrade it. We release it at higher rents. Um, so that was the strategy going into the investment. Like Lee said, we closed in 2016, um, began our execution, and you know we did well in some things, and we tripped on some others and had some lessons learned. So you know, overall, I agree, Lee. It, it was a great execution. We had forecasted a 17% IRR, and as Lee said, we we hit a 26. So we really did hit it out of the park on this mm -hmm. one for the investor team. Yeah, Ryan, if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe some of these hiccups, I think those are helpful learning experiences for everybody. Yeah, we had a few. I mean, the, the, the first big hiccup we ran into, and, and I'll describe it a little bit, is we had the vision of, as I mentioned, the market rate units and really upgrading those and changing the resident profile. When we took over the property, those units were, were heavily occupied by Section 8 vouchers, which is a voucher program that local housing authorities have um, that that roughly the resident pays 30% of their income toward rent and the housing authority makes up the difference. The goal was to decrease our reliance on that program and really retenant the property. So we started that process and quickly found out that that was not as easy as we thought it was going to be. Um, so we had to step back and rethink that process a bit and, and kind of restabilize the occupancy and redeploy the interior capital a little bit differently than maybe we had originally anticipated. Um, so we quickly downshifted to more systems. So we had HVAC systems that are very expensive in Texas um, that we moved to deploy some of those funds into and really help stabilize the, the physical condition of the asset. 
Um, so that was kind of lesson one. And when I say lesson one, it's you can't always do what you thought you were going to do and you should pay attention early to the indicators. Um, and so that was lesson one. Lesson two was a big one, and, and Lee and I can talk about this, but uh, the Wild West of Texas and property taxes are, are a little bit um, unknown. It's a non-reporting state. They don't know what you paid for the property. And so you they, they kind of the way they assess is to look at everybody and lift all boats at the same time. So we'd forecasted our property taxes to be one number, and they ended up in a reassessment at about sixty dollars or $70,000 higher than we thought. And so that's per year, 60 or per seven. year. Yeah. And man, Lee, that's a killer, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't change that. Um, you know, we fought it, we, we appealed it, but you know, it's made us get a little more conservative on our tax estimates. And, you know, Lee, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about just taxes in general and how we, we look at them, but it is one of those things that you can't fix if you're wrong. No, no, that's right. Yeah. Pro property taxes are generally a wild card everywhere uh, with uh, local governments and state governments uh, uh, needing revenue all the time. Uh, they certainly want to put, put their hand in your pocket. And so uh, we're very vigilant about property taxes going into an acquisition like this. And certainly every year it's reviewed. Uh, and uh, the tax consulting firm that we use uh, has a great database and they know what, uh, for the most part, everybody else is paying and, and uh, I think what, what we learned in this particular case, and you can speak to it more, Ryan, but uh, we need to get the, the tax uh, people involved day one, uh, even before we acquire the property and get some sort of an estimate from them because they're much more tuned in to trends uh, that they're seeing in, in assessments, assess valuations. Uh, and so I think we're doing that now uh, going forward. But this was a big, big hiccup. Uh, if you look at say $75,000 uh, more in, in property taxes, and you capitalize that at, uh, at 10%, that's $750,000 hit to your value. If you capitalize it at 5%, which is where a lot of cap rates are, and even less than that, you're looking at a million and a half dollar uh, whack on your proceeds. So, you know, right out of the blocks, we're trying to figure out how do we make up for a seventy to $80,000 increase in taxes that we weren't expecting at all. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a, a word to the wise of, you, you know, get, get your tax consultants involved early. And, and the second thing that we do is, Lee, you like to call it the hurt me analysis. Yep. You know, we underwrite our taxes, assuming we're going to be, you know, 85, 90% of purchase price and see what that does to us. Because, even if you get an estimate, there's no guarantee that's right. So you should perform these hurt me analysis to see where exactly is the breaking point here if we're wrong. Well, and, and the hurt hurt me, just to clarify that, uh, we want people that are third party arm's length folks to tell it like it is, not what they think we wanna hear. Uh, and if it blows up a deal, it blows up a deal, uh, but we can't, uh, we can't take chances uh, with our investor capital as a fiduciary. So we've got to go in with our eyes wide open and and a margin of safety built into the deal. Yeah. Have we been in the scenario, Ryan or Lee, where we have walked away from a deal because there was too much uncertainty or the task risk was the tax risk was too high? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I do think you have to be 
realistic about your box. And and we're in an environment even today where the capital is so hot and mm-hmm. people are starting to, you know, we're seeing great, we think what we think are crazy things in the market and really staying within your box and looking at the, the base metrics and staying objective, I think is essential in any transaction, but especially now, because you don't want to get into something that's going to end up being upside down, you know, when you try to go sell it. And so, yeah, we've absolutely gotten into deals where either it wasn't what they purported, the capital was far higher than we thought it was going to be, or was purported. There was one deal where they'd moved in 10% of the rent roll with 30 days before the diligence started at a 10% discount on rents. So you're going to find things if you're vigilant about it. And you just, you know, not every little thing you can ding someone for, but big things like that, you got to be on the lookout for. We, in, in the case of Centerville Point, we knew the seller. The seller, it was not an off market transaction, but uh, the seller is a highly respected national firm. Uh, we've had a relationship with them for many years. And so there was a lot, a, an element of trust. I think when we underwrote the property, we still did serious due diligence uh, as we would with any property. But I think it was helpful to know who built the property in the first place. And, uh, and, and I think this was borne out. Uh, in uh, the ultimate sale of the property, that it's good bones, uh, good location. Uh, we we ran it reasonably well from an operating standpoint. And uh, um, it, 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 Ryan, why did we sell it uh, after five years when we modeled it after for seven years? Well, so let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, when opportunity comes, you know, your goal is you buy, you improve, and then ultimately you sell when the time is right. And we had gotten some broker opinions of value at the request of our limited partner. um, And they were eye popping. I mean, we looked at it and said, man, can we really get this for Centerville? And it's a function of our NOI was tracking to pro forma, but the market, we, we also put margins of safety in our underwriting. So We'd increase the cap rate on the sale. I mean, we try to make sure we aren't wrong about our projections. And it just so happened that the cap rate didn't expand like we thought it was going to or like we'd forecast. So when we got the numbers from the broker opinion of value, it was very clear that this was going to be a big win. And the time was right to pull a sale execution on the on the deal. We had already done our value add. Um, and so it's time for somebody else to, to take the reins and for us to take some chips off the table. And that's, that's really what drove the decision to ultimately sell the property. Now, did we have a prepayment penalty on this deal? Uh, I don't know. We didn't have a prepayment penalty on okay. this one. Because so, sometimes that's a driver. Uh, uh, right. If we have a large prepayment penalty that hasn't burned off yet, we'll, we'll hold off uh, on a sale. Uh, some, sometimes it doesn't line up perfectly with that, that desired five-year hold. Right. In this case, it sounds like there was no prepayment penalty of the way you structured the financing. So, Yeah, I think that you know my advice for first-time investors or for early investors is, you know, for us, what we do is we have about a two-and-a-half-year investment execution. So what we say by that is our upgrade program and repositioning is going to take about two-and-a-half years. After that, we program some runway And it's a discussion every year. How's the market doing? How are the sales executing? Is now the right time to sell or not? And we give ourselves room to either hold on to the asset and ride some cash flow or execute a sale if now's the time or execute a refinance. I mean, there's all different ways to 
continue to drive value on a property, you just have to strike when the iron's hot and strike when the time is right and be on top of your analytics. And that's really how we approach investing in general. Um, but, but this one in particular was, was a big plus, big win. Well, Ryan, I, I think that's a great way to wrap things up. I mean, paying attention to the timing, of course, is critical. And now more than ever, I would say, when, as we've talked about before, this market is so hot um, and it's been great for our investors that we were able to capitalize on that in addition to executing our plan really well. So thank you everyone for listening today. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Ryan, for being here. And we'll talk to you all next time. We'll